Hi, my name's Dwayne. If you don't know me, um, like Sabrina said, my name is still Dwayne, even if you do know me. Uh, But um, I am here today, uh, not just because Keith Miller is not here, but Keith Miller is not here. Um, We are happy for him. He is spending great time with his family uh, and his parents in uh, in Alaska, actually. So they're having a wonderful time. Sort of a year long, a, a year delay on a big anniversary trip shindig with the whole family Um, but because of covid they couldn't make that happen but now they are so we're happy that they are there Um, but you're stuck with me today so sorry about that Uh, (laughs) we are a uh, in the middle of a series about creating culture we decided to embark on this topic because after the sort of disjunction of covid and sort of being scattered we realize, you know, we need to talk about this idea of culture. Who are we as followers of Christ? Who are we as life path? Um, and so I won't read all these to you, but we've been in the middle of this series and talking about just different ways to create culture and different um, stories from the scriptures that help us to create culture. And uh, today, August the 1st, I'm going to be talking to you guys about, about play, creating a culture of play. Um, so I think we're going to have a little bit of, um, it's going to be interesting, I, I think. Um, Diving into the topic, um, I was looking at some statistics, and we love recreation and leisure in this country. We really do. Um, So it's fun to see uh, some of the numbers. In 2019, looking pre-COVID, because that sort of skewed these a little bit, but pre-COVID, 2019, Americans spent a total of $2.3 trillion on recreation. $2.3 trillion was our spending as a country on recreation activities. Um, outdoor recreation, and many of you are the outdoor recreation type, that was a good chunk of it. It was a $460 billion on outdoor recreation. Um, Americans took 1.9 billion trips for pleasure, not business trips, but trips for pleasure, travel for pleasure. 1.9 billion, um, and, uh, and each family unit over the course of the year spent an average of $3,050 on entertainment only. Entertainment, so movies, TV, theater, um, you know, those kinds of things, right? Uh, so that's a lot. It's, it's part of our life. Leisure, fun, travel, recreation. It's part of what we do, and it's not something we talk about a lot as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Um, What do we do with that? What do we do with this idea of recreation and leisure and fun? And I think a lot of us, maybe depending on our church background, we harbor a little bit of of guilt about that. Like we're sort of reluctant to come into church and talk about the vacation we just went on because isn't that a little frivolous and that's not really like helping the kingdom of God because I just literally just got back a couple days ago from San Diego with on a vacation from, with my family. Like, it's weird, right? We, we don't know what to do with that as disciples. So I want to talk about that today. What do we do with that? Unfortunately, the Bible is a little bit mysterious on this subject of recreation, leisure, fun, and play. Uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of, of really clear instruction about that. Um, there's some. There's, there's a little bit. We can infer some things. One of the things we can infer is that um, God must think that, that parties are important because he actually commanded us to party. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Deuteronomy, uh, the code, the, the law that was given to the Hebrew people said you will have 
the following festivals every year. You will celebrate and rejoice and have festivals every year. There were three, three big ones. Um, and Deuteronomy spells it out. So it must have been important uh, in, in, our, in our worship, in our, in our community life as human beings, right? Because God sort of ordained that. We also see in, in the life of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, his very first miracle took place at a party. It was a wedding. And this is not a wedding like we have weddings where you go for a couple hours and, you know, throw some rice. You don't do that anymore, do you? It's bad for the birds. But whatever you do, um, blow bubbles. We threw bird seed at my wedding, I think. Um, these were big-time events. A wedding in the ancient Near East, Near East was like a week-long event. And we know that the miracle Jesus performed was turning water into wine. So he was helping to keep the party going. Yeah, so we, we can see that. It's at least there in Scripture. Um, but on the other hand, there's also the other side of that, right? So we have entire groups of people like the Puritans, for example, who, based on their interpretation of Scripture, decided to renounce all forms of, of pleasure and enjoyment, right? Because it was frivolous. And they did that based on their reading and understanding of Scripture. Uh, we also have theologians from, from early, church fathers from early, early in, in our Christian history, like uh, St. Augustine, who did the same thing, sort of renounced all, all pleasure and enjoyment. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that, that we see that sometimes it's in, in the Scripture and sometimes it's there, but then there's some other teachings that make it seem like maybe it's not okay? I'm hoping that there's a third way. Right? I'm hoping that there's a third way uh, between the, the asceticism or the renouncing of all pleasure and, and hedonism and just sort of like to totally overindulging, right? Is there a middle ground? And as I look through scripture, as strange as it sounds, I think the closest thing that I could find to a balanced middle ground was in Ecclesiastes. Uh, now, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you might be going, hmm, that's interesting, uh, if you don't know anything about Ecclesiastes, I'm not surprised because we don't usually teach from Ecclesiastes up here because the truth is it's kind of a depressing book. It's a little pessimistic. It's a little challenging to deal with. In fact, when the rabbis were first hashing out what writings were going to appear in, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the canon that they were putting together, they really debated about Ecclesiastes. Because there are some moments that doesn't feel like it's really in line with the rest of Scripture in terms of what it says about God. But if you really look at it and dig deep, it, it, it sort of is. So let's get into it. Most of us are probably most familiar with the text from Ecclesiastes thanks to the 1960s folk, songs by, folk song by the birds. To everything, there is a season. Turn, 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 right? So this song we know, and in fact, I think all but, I think I read three, all but three or maybe four words of that song are directly out of Ecclesiastes. So we know that there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, right? We know, we, we understand that. But, but in the bigger context of the book of Ecclesiastes, what is the point of this book? Another thing that might be in our minds if we've heard it before is the very opening. And unfortunately, the opening and this phrase repeats throughout the book, it, it suffers from a bad translation. You might have heard the phrase, um, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? Or you might have heard it translated this way, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, right? 
neither of those are really great translations because the word there used as meaningless or used as vanity or, or in many other different translations, it's a word that means vapor. It means vapor. Like air that's infused with particles, like smoke or like something like that. It, it means vapor. So to say that everything is meaningless really makes Ecclesiastes sound totally pessimistic. But that's not really what the teacher is saying. The book is actually written um, in such a way that it's a narration of, of, a, of a teacher. Uh, Kohelet is, is the Hebrew word, and it means teacher or, or one who gathers, one who assembles. Um, long ago, it was thought that that was probably Solomon who wrote the book. Now, most scholars agree that it was probably not Solomon and was actually hundreds of years after the reign of Solomon. But, but this teacher is imparting wisdom about life. And what the teacher says is, I've tried all this stuff. I've tried accumulating wealth. I have tried living for, for pleasure and for fun. I have tried uh, fame and all these things, and all of it is vapor. Vapor. Not meaningless, and not even necessarily vanity. That's, those aren't good words, but vapor. Why vapor? Vapor is a great word because, have you ever tried to catch smoke? You can't grab onto it, can you? It's there, you see it, you know it's real, right? But you, you can't catch it, it's elusive. The other thing that's great about this metaphor of vapor is that it passes away quickly, it goes away quickly, it's fleeting, right? So what the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying is that all these things in our life that we, that we try, like achieving success in our work, um, trying to have uh, great wealth, trying to do this, that, it's, it's elusive. We, we try to seek after it, but we can't grab onto it. And if we think we do grab onto it, it doesn't last very long. It's not there. And he talks about how life is, is short. Everybody dies. It, there's some of the more depressing parts where the teacher says, look, no matter what you accomplish in your life, you're still going to die. Right? So, why am I talking about this in a message that's supposed to be about play and about fun? Well, in my brief summary of Ecclesiastes, and this is great, you can use this at parties, uh, number one is all of life is vapor, and number two, what the teacher concludes is there is nothing better in life than to eat, drink, and enjoy. Now that, again, that may sound a little hedonistic, it may sound like, well, let's party it up, but that's not really what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes, because this enjoy part, he talks a lot about getting enjoyment from your work. Wait a minute, didn't he just say that that's vapor? Yes, so you might as well work hard and enjoy it and reap the benefit of knowing that you've enjoyed your work, right? So that's the idea. It's fleeting, it's elusive. Everything is fleeting and elusive, but you might as well enjoy it while you've got it and have some fun, right? That's the idea. So it's not complete, it's not complete hedonism, it's not just party it up, because nothing matters. It's not everything is meaningless. It's everything is short-lived and everything is really hard to pin down. So in the, be in the moment and enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy who you're with. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about making sure that you are doing things with others. Working and toiling alone is no good, but working and toiling alongside others is valuable. So, I look to this as our guidance and our inspiration because there's not a lot of other things in Scripture uh, that talk to us about play and about enjoying 
fun and leisure and, and play. I'm focusing on the word play because there's some science behind it. Um, play is something that, that human beings do from the moment they're born. Play is something that animals even do. We even see in the wild that animals play. Animals don't take vacations, right? They don't travel to, you know, I don't know, maybe birds, they migrate. I don't maybe that counts. I don't know. But <laughs> animals don't take vacations, but they do play. So I'm going to focus on this idea of play because I think it's more of, a, uh, more of an innate, um, built-in feature of, of our humanity. So I'm going to talk about play, and what better to, to get us going than to talk about children. I want us to, to brainstorm a little bit about how children play. So um, you've all seen signs like this. Uh, fun story, I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, and I loved these signs, and I always joked with the kids and volunteers in my youth group, I, I was going to steal one of these signs one day to hang it in my office, because I just love the idea, slow children at play, for a couple reasons. It reminds me to slow down, and it reminds me that, that play is really important, not just for the kids that I was ministering to, but for myself as well. And little did I realize that one of my youth volunteers, a Sunday school teacher, worked for the Department of Transportation. Um, and, and he, was, he, he worked an office job. He worked a desk job. I had no idea that he had access to the facility where these signs were made. And he walked in one day with this, these signs. And you know they're bigger than you realize because you see them on the, on the street and they look smaller, but like it's, it's, it was a huge thing. And he walks into my office with this sign. It was a wonderful gift. And so I actually had this uh, hanging in my office as a youth pastor. Um, so let's think about children. How did children play? I, I came up with a few, uh, with a few thoughts, and I'm going to use the whiteboard. Keith is not here to see this. He's going to be proud of me when he hears me using the whiteboard. Um, I, I'm going to I come up with some categories, like to group the ways that children might play. And these are not official. These are just from my brain, right? So there are a few things. What do children do when they play? So the first thing is they create. They create. So think about the ways that children create things. Have you ever seen a child building something, building a sandcastle, making mud pies, right? Uh, building with Legos, right? Using their, their creative ability um, to draw, to color, to paint, uh, to create music, right? So children play, they sing songs. That's all sort of in the creative realm. Another thing uh, that children do is they imagine. They imagine. Now, when a child uses their imagination, they, uh, they play dress up, right? We had a giant bin of clothes for many, many years when our kids were little because they would love to, to dress up. Um, playing make-believe, like pretending that there's something else. Um, storytelling. Children play by telling stories. Uh, sometimes they tell stories about things that are really happening, and sometimes they make believe and they tell stories, right? So storytelling. It's also partly creative, I guess, storytelling is. It could be in either category. But... So there's lots of different ways that they create. Um, another way that children play is they use their bodies, right? So using your body to play um, is, is very common. You see children, they jump, they skip, um, they spin around until they get dizzy and fall down, right? When was the last time you did that? I haven't done that recently. Go home and try it in a safe room. It's fun. Um, so they use their bodies. They play games. They play with balls. They play sports and games and things like that. Um, and uh, the other thing that's, that's important is rough and tumble play. Um, scientists tell us that rough and tumble play actually teaches us a lot about our limits and the limits of other people, and, and so that kind of play. So they, they use their bodies. Um, 
A fourth one, I couldn't really figure out exactly how to describe this, but I'm going to call it wonder. Because children, children wonder at things, don't they? They're amazed at things. Um, have you ever been with a young child and, and played with bubbles, blown bubbles? What is amazing about bubbles? Just everything. Like you blow on a stick and this, this thing appears and it's like this weird spherical thing. You can kind of see through it, but it's kind of weird looking and it floats, it defies gravity. And then it like pops and it disappears and it's gone. Like this incredible, right? To a three-year-old, that's like the most amazing thing in the world. And they, they play but by, by being engaged in things that, that create wonder. That's why they splash in puddles. Don't stop your kid from jumping in puddles. Like, that's weird. I'm, I'm walking, but when I do this, this stuff flies up. That's incredible. Snow is amazing for kids, right? Um, I know kids who, who've been fascinated by trains. Uh, and fascinated by trains because they're big and they're loud and they make smoke and, and they move and they got all these parts. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's filled with wonder. And that's a way that, that children play. Um, we, we were in San Diego actually last week and kind of um, getting to our, reminiscing from our childhood, we decided to take our kids to a couple of places because San Diego is famous for its wildlife, not necessarily its natural wildlife, but its zoo and other things. And so we, we went to the uh, San Diego Safari Park where they have giant spaces where a lot of these animals roam free and we saw amazing animals. And then we, we also went to SeaWorld um, and uh, my kids grow, grew up going to SeaWorld when they were very little because we lived in San Antonio and they have a park there, but, but I had never been to the one in San Diego. So we took them there and it was just fun to see even my 18 and 16 year old just like in awe at, at these giant orcas, you know, like they're just so magnificent. Even me, like standing at the window when the walrus comes up, this 3,000 pound thing swimming so gracefully and putting its whiskery tusked face right up against the glass. It's just like, wow. I don't know if you guys see walruses very often but they're pretty cool right and so that sort of thing that's play engaging in, in wonder right and then the final thing is they laugh kids laugh and this is something that is really important to play and sometimes something that that is a little disarming because <laughs> we always joke about this in my house because you know um Middle schoolers, middle schoolers are just like aliens, right? Middle school is a very hard time for everyone, and middle schoolers sometimes, as a grown-up adult who has been a teacher of middle schoolers, like, they can totally tear you down just by laughing at the wrong time, and you're thinking to yourself, you're a full-grown adult, you're 40 years old, and you're like, what are they, are they laughing at me? Are they, did I do something wrong? Are they laughing? Because, you know, kids laugh, they like to laugh, and sometimes it's, it's, it's just it means nothing, but they're just laughing at something, right? So from the time kids are little and they giggle and, and they're, they're babies and they giggle at your face, right? And then all the way up to teenagers who, who laugh at you for the shoes you're wearing or something. I don't know. Um, so there are all kinds of ways that children play. So working towards a definition of play, I think this is a good starting place, right? So think about ways in your life and maybe in the past that you have engaged in creative activity or that you have used your imagination or how way, ways that you've used your body to play, or that you've engaged in wonder, or, or how you laugh and incorporate that into your life. So as we go towards a definition of play, a few things that I want to get to. The first thing is that uh, we need to understand that play is essential to human existence. 
Play is essential to who we are as human beings. Uh, there's a scientist by the name of Stuart Brown who wrote a book entitled Play. It's a great book. He also has TED Talks. If you just Google Stuart Brown Play, uh, you can find his TED Talks, you can find his, his book. And he got into this field of, of studying play in a very interesting way. It's actually a pretty dark, pretty dark way that he got into it. He was a young professor of psychiatry um, in 1966 and happened to hear on a portable radio about something that was going on in Austin, Texas in 1966. The, the, I don't know if you know about the shooter who, who um, climbed the tower at, at the University of Texas in Austin with a high-powered sniper's rifle. He was a former military sniper, and he, um, he killed 15 people and injured like 30 more. It was the worst mass shooting by a single individual in the history of our country, and was so for the next 15 years even. Um, and so he heard about this tragedy, and his boss in the Department of Psychiatry said, why don't you try to do a profile and, and sort of get to the heart of what were some of the characteristics of the shooter and what maybe made him do this. And so he did, and he began researching this, this individual. And, um, and of course, with everything, everything is complicated, and human beings are complicated, so it's not a, that there was one particular cause. But one thing that he noticed that he thought was really interesting was that from everyone he interviewed about this shooter's young life, it became evident that this person never engaged in play as a child. He was, his childhood was void of play. In fact, his father would punish him if he wandered too far or didn't do what he was supposed to do, um, physically, violently punish him. And his, from his neighbors to his teachers, they all said the same thing. Oh, he never, he never played. He never engaged in any of these kinds of things. So that, in, that caused Stuart Brown to have a sort of interesting idea, and so he went to uh, the prison in Huntsville, Texas, and interviewed a few dozen murderers, convicted murderers, and talked to them and asked them about their life and sort of began to develop this similar pattern that a lack of play as a young child has certain impacts on us as we grow, as we get older. And again, it's not a direct one-to-one -one cause, of course. That's not the way science works. But it was an interesting pattern, and it got him to sort of dive into this field of play, which is challenging because to, to, you hear him talk about trying to get grants. You know, you go into uh, a National Science Foundation or Carnegie or wherever and try to get a grant, and you say, yeah, I want to study play. <laughs> Thank you, next. <laughs> let's, let's research cancer. Right? <laughs> We're not going to research dodgeball. Right? That's not a thing. Um, so... Uh, but he has. He's done it, and he's got a good body of research. But the important thing here is, is to understand that play is something that is essential to our existence. Um, it is something that we do from the very moment we are able to make eye contact and have a smile with our, with our caregiver, and the, and the coos and the giggles and the touch, and that it's play. It's playful existence. It's something that we do from a very early age. And as I said earlier, it's something we even see in the animal kingdom. Animals will play with each other. And they, you, you all, if you have a dog or even a cat, you understand there is a, a playful stance that they adopt when they're ready to play. And that's a signal that even other species, other animals can understand that. And so they, they can engage in play together. So it's something that's part of who we are. And actually, play actually helps us survive. Um, another study that Stuart Brown talks about is they, they had... Uh, some rats, and, and rats play too. They squeak and squeal and tumble and tussle and, and they will play. So they had a group of rats that they prevented from playing. So they did not allow them to play. And then another group of rats that they allowed to play naturally. And then they introduced a, a collar that was saturated with the smell of a cat. 
Now, instinctively, rats will run from that, that smell because that's just hardwired into them, which is great because that's survival, right? So both groups of, of rats fled and hid from this cat collar. The group that had not been allowed to play remained hidden. They never emerged from their hiding place, and they died because they didn't even come out to eat. The group of rats that had been allowed to play gradually, slowly emerged from their hiding, checked out their surroundings, sniffed a little bit. They were curious. They understood how to maybe solve problems a little bit better. They came out and saw that there was no threat, and they survived. So play helps us learn things about our environment, about other people, about how to interact with the world. Play is hardwired into us in our DNA. And I think it's really important to understand this because, as I mentioned earlier, as disciples of Jesus, we have to try to understand how God is revealing himself to us. And scripture is our primary means of revelation. We look to scripture to see what God has to say to us, but it's not the only means of revelation. God can sometimes also reveal himself through nature and through other things. I happen to believe that the more we understand about the human body, the human mind, human emotions, the closer we can get to understanding more things about God because scripture says we were created in his image. So if we look at play and how play is a part of who we are as human beings, I believe we can see that, okay, there's something there that's divine. There's something there that is a reflection of God. So I do think that not only is play essential to human existence, play was created by God as he created us as playful individuals. I think it's important to understand that. Um, so not only does science give us a little bit of a revelation into the fact that, that God created play, but another thing we can look at is the scriptures. And while we don't see playing necessarily in scriptures, what we do see is the word joy, or some variation of the word joy, about 200 times in scripture. The word rejoice, or some variation of it, about 300 times in scripture. So about 500 times in the 66 books of scripture, we see this word joy or rejoice. Sometimes it's a command. Sometimes it is an expression. Sometimes it's, it's just infused with our life as disciples, as followers of, of Jesus. Joy and rejoice. And what does that have to do with play? Everything. Because joy is the source of play. And play leads to joy. It's a nice circular idea, right? We play and it makes us joyful and then our joy makes us want to play. It's all connected. So when the Bible says rejoice, there is joy in the Lord. Those are indicators that there's something connected to a life of play and a life of, of lightness and a life of, of happiness, right? So I do think it's important to know that, that play was created by God. In terms of a definition of figuring out, okay, what counts as play, Dwayne? I do all kinds of things for fun. Just because I do it for fun, does that make it play? I think we define it this way, and this is not my definition. I got this from Stuart Brown. He says that play is something that we do for its own sake. Play is something we do for its own sake. Like, you may exercise, like, religiously, right? You may exercise daily and, and be really devoted to exercise. But if you're doing it because you need to get in shape, or if you're doing it because you need to lose weight, or you're doing it because you need to lower your cholesterol, then it's probably not play. But if you just love 
basketball and you just go play once a week because you love the game, that's probably play, right? So understanding that doing it for its own sake is probably part of that definition, right? And of course, there's some overlap in some gray areas because you do actually get benefit from exercising, but if you're choosing to do it because you love it, that's probably play. Um, interesting, the Olympics are on, right? So if you're watching the Olympics, it's kind of fun. Um, it's a year late. We've been missing them. My family is a big fan of the Olympics. We like to watch. And um, was uh, having a conversation with Jack the other day about the idea of amateurs in the Olympics. And I'm old enough to remember when the Olympics was all amateurs, right? There's no professionals allowed. And it was a big deal in 1992 with the basketball, right? Because the dream team, uh, people say this is the greatest sports team ever assembled because you had Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, David Robinson, Charles Barkley. You had all the great players from the late 80s and early 90s on one team and it was fantastic and we all watched it, it was amazing and they won every game by an average of like 44 points, it wasn't even close and then we were all like, yay USA, we're the best, right? So we were having this conversation about when did professionals get allowed in the Olympics and I was actually under the mistaken impression that it was still just a few sports that allowed professionals. But I went and looked and after telling Jack the wrong thing, I went and looked it up and you know, corrected myself. Those of you who are fathers, just, you should just admit when you're wrong. It's just better all the way around. I tried to pretend that I was right, but then it didn't, I was like, no, you're, I was just stupid. I just didn't know what I was talking about. So I researched it and looked it up, and it turns out that in the early 90s, the IOC was like, nah, forget it. Just anybody can just come on in. So, you know, I, I don't want to get into the debate. Some people feel really strongly about this. Um, we certainly now have the best athletes in the world competing in the Olympics, but it, maybe it loses something because they're professionals and they do it for a job, Right. But the point is this idea of the amateur. What is an amateur? We use amateur to contrast with professional. Professionals are paid for what they do, so they, are, they must be the best at what they do, right? The dream team were professionals, right? Four years earlier, we lost because they were just college kids in basketball, right? So amateurs. We even use amateur as sort of derogatory. Oh, you're such an amateur, right? It means you're not that good. But you know the word amateur in English its Latin root is actually the word love. Amateur means lover. So a professional tennis player makes money playing tennis. An amateur tennis player loves the, the game. If you're an amateur, it means you are a lover of that activity. So play is doing something for its own sake. If you're an amateur, it means you love this activity so much that you're doing it and you're, you're playing at it, right? So that's the idea. That's the definition of play. Why should we play? We are disciples of Jesus. We are focused on our calling from God. We are focused on our kingdom work. We are focused on the gospel. Why play? What does play have to do with any of that? Well, there are a few reasons. Number one, play renews us and helps us empathize. Two things, a little bit different, but, but they, they go together, and I'll explain how. Play renews us, rejuvenates us, re-energizes us. If you are living your life as a disciple of Jesus and you are working to bring in the kingdom of God, bring the kingdom of God into being, you're living to, to share the gospel. You are, are living to, to bring justice into the world where there is no justice. If you're like most people, that's hard work. 
and it's exhausting. Sometimes we're made to feel like if we're really doing it right, we should just feel God's energy and it shouldn't drain us at all. But that's just not true. It's, it's hard work to, to bring justice into the world faced with constant opposition to justice. It's hard to work with the poor in a situation where even Jesus admitted the poor will always be with you. It's like, I'm never going to solve this problem, but I know I'm committed to working, to helping with the poor. That's exhausting. So why play? Play because it does something to us that rejuvenates us and restores us and gives us our energy back to go and do the thing that God has asked us to do. There's a balance there. There's a balance. Uh, it's really, really important to play. And so it, it renews us for the work of God. But it also creates empathy, strangely enough. Um, a young kid on the playground punches another kid, and that kid cries. And the kid who punches the kid says, wait a second, that, that really hurt him, that really upset him. I don't want him to do that to me, so maybe I shouldn't punch people anymore, right? There are things that happen in play that, that help you learn to empathize with others, even make-believe play. How do we, um, well, I'll just be sort of frank here. As a, as a white man, how do I put myself in the, in the situation of what it must be like to be black in America? I'll never know that for sure, but I can start to imagine it because I've, I've used my creative imagination in playful ways in my life. I've, I've played small roles in little skits and theater drama things, right? I've, I've imagined myself in other situations as a child. So, so play has helped me to be a little bit more empathetic to the plight of, of our women in India that we take care of or, or the poor and the homeless uh, that we work with in other ways, right? So we can, we can empathize with others. Play actually makes us better at doing the works of compassion that we need to do the works of justice, the works of God's kingdom. So play is key to that. Another reason that we should play is that play bonds us with other people. Um, marriage therapists will do this often. They will encourage couples to play together, do something fun together. And it does something. It does something, even, you know, as silly as it sounds, um, when, when my wife and I watch a TV show together, we laugh at the same time and we sort of feed off each other and it, it, we're not even interacting, but just watching something funny brings us together in a really interesting and unique way. If you play sport with other people, you know that it bonds you, binds you, bonds you, creates a bond between you. Teams, sports teams will, will, will show this. You'll see after a long season and a difficult challenge and maybe in the playoffs, you'll see sports teams, amateur and professional alike, that have a bond because playing together brings you closer together. We are, as disciples of Jesus, called to live life with one another, to live life together, to connect with one another. And play bonds us with other people. The third thing is that play can lead us to God and can help us contemplate God. Now, how does that work? How does play lead you to God? Well, it depends on what you're doing, and it depends on what your play is, but there are many types of play that can help you draw nearer to God and help you kind of see God. Uh, so, for example, my, 
my primary play, my primary play language is travel. Um, as I thought back on my young life and some of my best memories and some of my most fun times, um, uh, there were individual events that stood out, but when I threaded them all together, I realized that it's because we were on a trip experiencing something new. Um, I grew up in, in Germany, so when I was three months old, my family moved uh, to what was then West Germany, and we lived there for six years, moved back to the States for two, and then back to Germany for another five. So by the time I was 13, I had lived 11 years in Germany, and we spent a lot of time traveling seeing sights, looking at different cities and different countries and different places. And all of my best memories from growing up are from travel. So for me, travel is my thing, and that's how I play. And so four years ago, I got the opportunity to take my family to Europe for the first time. Um, Elisa had been to England in college once, but the kids hadn't gone at all. And it was really important for me to share that with them. And so um, I, I just kept... Um, kind of had a, an alert set up for any airfare in Europe. <laughs> Found the cheapest airfare I could. I didn't care where I went. And we ended up going to Zurich. That was where the flight went to. So I was like, okay, we'll go to Switzerland. So my play led me here. And this is a picture from my camera um, on a walk. Kaysen is right beside me. And this, if you, if you stand here and don't feel a sense of closeness to God, I'll have to check your pulse. There's something, it's just unbelievable, the, this ma the majestic beauty, right? Now, for me, that's, that's nature, and for some people, it's really nature is, is that language, but for me, it's not even necessarily nature, because some of my best travel memories as a kid were um, to the city of Rome. Why did I love Rome so much? Because I loved the ancient ruins, and the ancient ruins were, like, fascinating to me that, that a human could build such a thing 2,000 years ago. It was incredible, right? So, travel, that leads me to God because when I'm traveling, I'm thinking, this is, this is incredible. And wow, God has created this or God has created humans with enough ingenuity to build or make this, depending on where I am, right? That may not be your thing. There are other things. Um, uh, so my friend Keith Miller, um, who most of you know, uh, Keith is a runner and I am not a runner. But when Keith talks to me about running, about his running experiences, I get so much joy. It's weird. Because when he talks about running, he's just so excited about it. And I'm, I love to hear him talking about running. Because he runs for fun. He runs, like, do you remember Chariots of Fire? Remember that movie? Do you remember the line from that movie? When I run, I feel his pleasure. I guarantee you that Keith Miller would tell you that when he runs, he is with God in a way that he is not in any other situation in his life. So play can lead you to God. If it's the right thing and it's the right activity and you're in the right frame of mind, it can lead you to God. But the other part of that was play can help us contemplate God. And the reason for that has to do with this idea of something called flow. Uh, there's a theory called flow by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Um, and, and the idea is that when you're engaged in an activity at the right level, it's not too hard and it's not too easy. You're experiencing success, but challenge enough to keep you going. You get in a state of flow. If you've ever been doing an activity and lost track of time, because you were just so zeroed in on it, you were probably in flow. And that idea of just zeroing in and focusing on something and doing that activity for the, for the sheer enjoyment and the presence of it, 
that's contemplative action. That's contemplative work. Now, it's, it's play, but it's practicing for the kind of contemplative stuff you might do in your spiritual life. So playing in the right ways can help train you to be contemplative in spiritual ways. So I think it's really, really fascinating. Now, you probably haven't picked up on this, but I'm about to point it out. Play renews us and helps us empathize. That has to do with our work in the world, right? The redemptive work that we do. Play bonds us with other people. That has to do with one another and how we relate to one another. Play leads us to God and helps us to contemplate God. That has to do with our relationship with Jesus. Now here at Life Path, we have a mission statement. And that mission statement is that we are creating communities of disciples that reconnect us to Jesus, reconnect us to one another, and reconnect us to God's redemptive work in the world. We believe that those are the three most important things that we do, really the three only things we do as disciples. We have a relationship with Jesus that we invest in and we grow. We have a relationship with others that we join together in our, in our faith life, and we, we work for the redemption uh, and the justice and the restoration in the world. And play connects to every single one of those. Play helps us be better disciples. I wish I had a Bible verse that I could put up here that just says, play helps you be a better disciple. It's not there, but I think it's true. I think it's true. Play helps us to be better disciples. Heading towards the end here, I just want to kind of tackle, on, uh, tackle some obstacles. Why do we not play anymore? Because as, as we talked about these ideas as, as children, you guys might have imagined some things that you did in the past and you probably imagine some things that you used to do but you don't do anymore. Why don't we play? Why don't we play anymore? The first thing that I hear a lot and that I think most of us might say is, I've got no time. I've got no time. And the simple truth is, I put it in quotes because play is not something you do in your spare time. Play is something you have to infuse into your life and you have to make sure that you are having that experience in everything that you do at least in as many ways as possible, right? So um, it's like waiting until you retire to actually have fun in life. It doesn't work. It's not healthy. It's not good. So, so we play all the time, so we shouldn't wait until we have the time. And the other thing, though, that's, that's a struggle is sometimes it just no longer comes naturally. Children play naturally. They just play. They're just like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to play. Strangers, you put them in a kid, room with another kid, and they're like, okay, let's play, right? Um, it doesn't come naturally to us anymore. So we struggle to figure out, well, what, what should I do? What should I do for fun? Right? So we end up just turning on Netflix because it's the only thing we can think of that we've done before. Right? So how do we play? It doesn't come naturally anymore. And then another, another um, obstacle is that often we're just too self-conscious. We're just too self-conscious to, to put ourselves out there. Right? Um, so um, my friends Sabrina and Fred um, do some karaoke. Well, I guess, Fred, you watch. I think you say <laughs> <laughs> and and as, as somebody who is a singer, I can tell you, it's still really nerve-wracking to do karaoke. It's fun, isn't it? It is so much fun once you get over the self-consciousness and put yourself out there, right? But it's nerve-wracking. Why? Because you're afraid people are going to judge you. Let's think about all these things. Think about, think about the self-consciousness that comes along with these things. You want to be creative? Well, guess what? There's somebody more creative than you. I can't, write, I can't write poetry. There are better poets than me. I'm going to write something and people will laugh at me. That's not, it's not going to be good. 
I can't do this creative activity. I can't. I see this all the time in, in my field in music. People are afraid to make music. Why? Because we all have Apple Music and Spotify and we know there are people better than us. <laughs> so we don't create anymore. We don't use our imaginations. That's childish. Like people are going to judge me. We're self-conscious about, about pretending. Why? Adults don't pretend. We deal with reality. Now, using our bodies, that's the one socially acceptable form of play that we still do. But even that doesn't work for everybody. If you know me, you probably wouldn't describe me necessarily as athletic, but I like sports. I've always loved playing basketball and football and volleyball and tennis, but I was never the tallest or the fastest or the strongest or the best or the most coordinated. So guess what? I've learned over time to be really careful about who I play sports with. I don't play sports in public. I play sports with you guys, because you love me and you know me. And in fact, at our, our retreat two Novembers ago, we had the men's retreat, we started by all diving into the gym and playing volleyball for hours. It was great fun. And I didn't have to be as self-conscious about my skill level, but guess what? I am normally in the world. So even though it's socially acceptable to use our bodies to play, there's still a lot of stigma that goes along with that and a lot of self-consciousness. And then wonder, like, I don't know, like I felt kind of it was nice to go to the zoo, but I felt kind of weird being so excited about a walrus, you know? I mean, it's just, you get a little self-conscious about that. And then, uh, and then laughter. I think laughter is another one that's, that's sort of socially acceptable because we laugh a lot. But So all these things we used to do and we don't do anymore because these obstacles are in our way, right? So we need to think about this. And here's my final uh, home stretch here. How do we play more? How do we infuse this into our lives more? And, and I think the first thing is, this is something um, that, um, that Stuart Brown advocates, and that is think back to your childhood and imagine the best memory that you have. Maybe it's a, a toy, a special toy that you always played with. Maybe it's a, a birthday party that happened. Maybe it's a trip you went on, right? So this is kind of the exercise that I did when I kind of figured out, oh, travel is my play. And start with that, your, your best happiest childhood thing and then and then move forward and see where that tracks do you have other experiences that were similar any any patterns that emerge and you might be able to discover your language of play then brainstorm ways that you can incorporate that into your life now right and it may not be able to be the exact same thing right it might not you might not be able to take that activity from childhood and just immediately you know, transplanted into your adult life. But what was it about that activity that was so fun and special? And can you do that now? Is there something about it that, that you can enjoy now? And then make sure you include others. Make plans to play with other people. Don't do it alone, right? Um, call somebody up and say, hey, do you want to, instead of going to get coffee, why don't we go and, and, uh, I don't know, play disc golf. I don't know. I don't play disc golf. Keith plays disc golf, but people say, people say they like it. So uh, do something, right? So can we play? Can we do some sort of activity together? And then honestly, just do it. Just play and feel God's pleasure, right? And maybe it's, maybe it's travel for you. Maybe it's running for you. Um, maybe it's knitting for you. And there are people who have all kinds of things that it's like, yeah, this is what I do. And when I do this, I get lost. And I feel God, and I feel a sense of connected and oneness. Play is really important, folks. 
Developing and creating a culture of play as disciples, it's not talked about enough, but as I showed you earlier, it connects with all of the major areas of discipleship, with our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with one another, and our relationship to God's redemptive work in the world. Play helps all of it. 